The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Now I would like for us to study and to meditate for a while upon the topic, the cost of Christianity. Christianity is indeed the world's greatest blessing. No question about that. And it is likewise a blessing that has cost the greatest price. No question about that. And we have just sung that grand old hymn, The Old Rugged Cross. And of course that tells us something of the price that was paid in the behalf of Christianity. And I'm sure that we're not fully able to comprehend the great sacrifice that God Almighty, God Almighty made in the behalf of our lost and ruined souls. But when we do look out and see man in a state of sin, lost and ruined, hopeless and helpless, groping along in darkness and unable to help himself. It is then that we can better appreciate the love of God and the price that Jesus Christ paid. We can better appreciate the old rugged cross. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And now we take a view of Jesus Christ as he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. The apostles are with him. His heart is heavy. He prays that the cup of suffering might be removed. But in every instance he prayed, not my will, but thine be done. Stations the apostles along the way, and he prays. The question is, will the Father save the Son? The Father looks out from on high and he sees another scene. He sees that cruel, bloodthirsty mob creeping up the hill like a hungry beast stalking his prey. And that cry of anguish again pierces the heavens and the angels weep. The question is, Will the Father save the Son? And you know the answer. God made the sacrifice. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But God commendeth his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 and 8 that there might be a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty state. And so today we are the recipients of the greatest love, and we are the recipients of the greatest blessings, and we have today Christianity, which we have embraced, which of course comes from Christ. 
Christianity. And we as Christians can be called Christians because we are the followers of the Son of God divine, Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord and Savior. And the Bible says in Hebrews 2 and 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. So Jesus Christ tasted death for every man. He died for every person. He died for the people of all races, of all colors, in all states and in all conditions of life. He died for the people on every shore and in every clime. The love of God has been extended to all. Jesus tasted death for every man. God so loved the world without an exception. And if the love of God only would save, then everybody would be saved because God loves everybody. And the price that God in Christ have paid in the behalf of sinful souls is extended to every creature. There isn't one single exception. So then we come around to the next price that has to be paid, and that's the price that we ourselves must pay to have the fruits and the benefits of Christianity and in order for the world to have Christianity. It costs us something. Now when we look at the lives of some people, at what they say and at what they do, we might get the impression that they didn't think there was one single thing for man to do. And that they believe that God paid the whole price, that Jesus paid the whole price. And hence they want to sing the song, Jesus paid it all, Jesus paid it all. And by looking at the way they live, you might get the impression that they thought that God paid the whole price and that there isn't one single solitary thing for us to do for the world to have Christianity. Why not, why not sing the good old song, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No. There's a cross for everyone, and there's a cross for me. How happy are the saints above who once went soaring here, but now they taste unmingled love and joy without a tear. The consecrated cross I'll bear till death shall set me free, and then go home my crown to wear, for there is a crown for me. So there is a cross for each one of us to bear, and we need to bear it with complete faith and commitment, bear it bravely and heroically to the very end. So now what does it cost us? In the first place, I suggest that it cost us the forsaking of all, the forsaking of all relatives and friends, relations and connections, 
whatever they might be, if they stand in the way of our accepting Jesus Christ and following him. It costs the forsaking of all. And Jesus made that very plain in Luke 14 and verse 26. He said, If any man come to me and hate not his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brethren and his sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So that's the price that we have to pay. Yet there are some who say, I want to follow my parents. You start talking to them about their obeying the gospel, about their becoming such as should be saved, that they might be added unto the Lord's church. And they say, but I want to follow my parents. Well, which one? Because every person traced back seven generations has 128 parents. He has two parents, four grandparents, six, uh, eight great-grandparents, 16 great-great-great-grandparents, and when you come on up to the seventh generation, it totals 128 parents. Were they all agreed? Of course not. Then which one are you going to follow? So it's very obvious that, that there is no way in the world that you can follow your parents because your parents were not agreed themselves. But isn't it better to make up your mind to follow Jesus Christ, the one who died for you, the one who gave his word to save your soul, and who has given the very word itself that will judge you at the day of judgment. You can see that that's entirely much, much better and a mark of wisdom. So we must be willing to give up that which stands between us and Jesus Christ. Now in the second place, I suggest that we must be willing to give up all human doctrines and all human religions because we are to embrace the doctrine of Jesus Christ and the religion that Jesus Christ has given without adding to it and without taking from it. Now, doesn't that sound sensible? Doesn't that sound reasonable? Who could find fault with that? Surely there isn't a person in all the world that can find fault with that statement that we are to serve God and we are to please God, not please ourselves. We are to please Christ, not try to please others. And therefore, we must be willing to give up all human doctrines and all human religions. Now, the Apostle Paul has given, has given us an example in that respect. He cut loose from the Jewish religion, the religion of his fathers, and he took a stand for Jesus Christ. He embraced Christianity, and he was faithful and loyal to the very end. And he said, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Philippians 3 and verse 7. And that is essential because one doctrine is not as good as another. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 15 and verse 9, 
but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. My friends, that isn't nearly right. That is right. That's not nearly right. That is right. Because that came from the lips of Jesus Christ. And one way is not as good as another because the Bible says there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 14 and verse 12. And then again, one religion, one plant, is not as good as another. Because Jesus has said in Matthew 15, verses 13 and 14, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. And again, I appeal to you this morning. That isn't nearly right. That is right. Because that came from Jesus Christ. So we must be willing to give up all false doctrines, the doctrines of men and all religions not given by Jesus Christ and planted by God Almighty. When I was about 22 years old, I held a gospel meeting at Sackerville, Oklahoma. The church was just almost brand new, about a year or two old in that little community. Lots and lots of people lived in that little town because it was sandy land and they had small acreages there in that Red River bottom. And we had an open-air meeting right down in the heart of the little old business district and a little two-lane paved highway went right through it and we were right beside it. Lasted about 15 days, three weeks, two weeks, three Sundays. And as we began to preach, we began to reap the benefit of sowing the seed of the kingdom. And before we can have a harvest, first of all, we must sow the seed. And we were sowing and we were reaping. And we were having baptisms every afternoon. Had no baptistry, go to a little lake a mile or two from there. And every afternoon, I would preach there at the water's edge and extend the invitation once again and baptize lots of people, 12 or 15 or 20 almost every afternoon. And uh, two young ladies came forward one night. News got back that their father wasn't going to let them be there the next afternoon for the baptismal service, that he was going to oppose it. He was one of the officials in a very strong it was getting weaker since we were baptizing so many of their members. But what started out to be a pretty strong church in that little town. He wasn't going to let them be baptized. So the song director and I went over to their house that afternoon, and I talked to him. And I'd heard that he'd said some pretty hard things about some of the preaching that I'd been doing. And I mentioned it in a very polite and kind way, and he didn't back up. He didn't deny one bit of it. I said, now that's all right. How you feel toward me isn't really important. That doesn't make a lot of difference, and you won't be judged at the day of judgment about how you feel toward me. Of course, it's going to come up how you feel about Christ 
and how you feel about the Word of God, but not about me. Now, I reasoned with him. And finally, after a while, he said it would be all right for the girls to be baptized. But he said, now, I want you to know this. You're not going to get me. Well, I knew right then that we would. That was a dead giveaway. That was a dead giveaway. And so the last night of the meeting, he came also. Now, let me tell you the rest of the story. We baptized so many people in the two largest denominations in that little town. The largest ones, the most popular ones. We baptized nearly everybody that was baptizable. And then the Sunday following the close of our meeting, they had those two had to go together to have enough for a service and then only had five people present. Only five people present. Now, why do I bring this up? Because they were willing to pay the price. They were willing to give up anything that was wrong in order to take a stand for pure, undefiled, undenominational, unsectarian Christianity. And what was once a great day for us ought to be our greatest day today. Just get people to reason with you and to go to the Word of God and to let God speak. Let God speak right out of the Holy Bible unto the hearts of the people. And it will get the job done. Now, in paying the price, we must also practice self-denial. There must be some denial on our part Jesus, Jesus has said in Matthew 16 and verse 24, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow after me. Now, our Lord has stipulated two requirements here in this passage for following him. One is self-denial. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself. And in the second place, let him take up the cross. Now, there is a little booklet, which I think perhaps is of French origin, that is called the cross barrier, that portrays different kinds of cross barriers. And it pictures one there who has a rope in his hand tied to the cross, and he's dragging it behind him. And, of course, it's creating a great uh, cloud of dust fogging up toward the heavens. He would like to be a cross barrier, but he's ashamed of it. Ashamed of it. He wants to drag it behind him. And then the book pictures another man who would like to be a cross barrier, but he considers the cross too heavy, too burdensome. And so this man is pictured with a saw in his hand, and he has the cross right down over his knee, and he's cutting the cross off, making it lighter, making it to fit himself. And this, my friends, is one of the greatest problems in the religious world today. People are cutting off the cross trying to make it fit themselves rather than making themselves to fit the cross. And they're going to the Word of God and they're trying to change the Word of God to fit themselves rather than change themselves to fit the Bible. They have their religion in reverse. It's in reverse. 
we need to change our thing to fit the word of God. And thus we bear the cross, and someday we can exchange it for the starry crown. And of course it takes courage, courage. But this is one of the traits the world admires. Everybody admires courage. And sometimes when I lecture to some of our preachers, preacher groups, I'm getting ready in just a few days to go over to Alabama to do that over at Faulkner University. Uh, I tell them this, you just remember, the world is not going to follow a coward. It never has and it never will. It takes courage out here in life and it certainly takes courage to lead people from this old world to the glories and to the beauties of heaven. I have done a little reading concerning Alexander the Great. And I learned in that reading that on one occasion, Alexander the Great sent out some spies to try to ascertain the strength of the opposing army. And when these spies returned to the general's camp, they said, General, they are so big, they are so numerous, so numerous, that when they pull their bows and let the arrows go, the arrows will be so numerous that it'll blot out the sun. And the general calmly replied, In that case, it will be so fine to fight in the shade. That's right. So fine to fight in the shade. And no wonder the world calls him great, Alexander the Great. Because that's truly a great attribute on the part of any mortal being. Now another thing, if we would pay the price, it requires sacrifice. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, Romans 12 and verse 1. A sacrifice. But why shouldn't it be a sacrifice? God's sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice. Christianity is a religion of sacrifice. Present our bodies a living sacrifice. Now back under the old Jewish law, they presented dead sacrifices, animal sacrifices under God. But you know what? Back at that time, one of those Jews couldn't say, well, let's see, let me look over the flock here. Now here, here's a lamb here that's puny, lousy, flea-bitten, half-starved, so I believe I'll give it to God. No, no, they couldn't do that. They had to pick out a lamb without spot and without blemish. And we have to sacrifice, present our bodies as living sacrifices unto God. I once read the story, the fable, of a hen and a hog that left the little farm and walked into the little town not far away to observe and to see the sight. And as they walked down the street, they looked up, the hen said, look there, look there. Ham and eggs. What is it? Ham and eggs. Look at that. And that hog said, 
Well, now, for you, that's all right. That's just a contribution. But for me, that's total commitment. So we're going to have to have more than just a contribution. We're going to have to have a total commitment. And certainly it is tragic on the part of so many members of the church today to give of their money but not give themselves. That's right. Give their money, but they don't give themselves. They apparently think that they can bribe God, but God can't be bribed. We have to present our body as living sacrifices unto God. Now in the next place, it does cost us a life of work. We have to work, work. The Bible says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2 and 12. Now, I know that that passage is certainly getting a licking today from some of our poor people who have been misdirected and misguided. And I say that with all candor and with all love. But they have done so much talking about the love of God and so much talking about the grace of God that they have forgotten that there is anything for man to do to be saved. And the grace of God alone will not save anybody. If so, everybody would be saved. We have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And when you overemphasize grace, the grace of God, and overemphasize love, and you don't really tell the people what it's really like when God saves you by his love, and what it's really like when God saves you by his grace, I'll tell you one thing. When you start doing that, you're going to empty your church buildings. You'll empty the church buildings everywhere. If that's all that we have to do to sit back and just enjoy the love of God and the grace of God, what will that do? Nobody will start working. Nobody will start praying. Nobody will be out here knocking on doors. You won't have any soul winners. Say, so, well, we'll just sit back and let God take care of it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And faith without works is dead. James says in James 2 and 26 that faith without works is as dead as a corpse. And if you'll pardon this grammatical error, I shall say that when you are dead, you can't get any deader or any more dead. You're just as dead as you'll ever be. And that's exactly how dead a religion is that is based on faith only. It's as dead as a corpse. James 2 and verse 26. Now it takes activity. It takes activity. It takes motion. It takes motion. We must have activity. Christianity is a religion of activity. It is a religion of motion. It is a religion of going. Go, go, go. So declares the Great Commission. A few years ago, a psychiatrist connected with a certain university received a federal grant, a government grant, to make a research to find out what caused the duck to quack. You know, you can get a grant for almost anything if you're connected with some university. 
to find out what, what might cause a grasshopper to jump to the left instead of the right or something. Oh, they got all kinds of these federal grants. So he got a grant to study what made a duck quack. And in, and in his research, he learned that the thing that caused the duck to quack was the motion of pebbles and crumbs within the throat. Motion. I suppose you could say that it was a matter of one quack dealing with another quack. <laughs> but the point is, the point is, that duck couldn't quack without motion. And we can't quack for Jesus Christ and for God Almighty without motion. We can't quack if we're just a bunch of corpse over here in the mortuary. We can't do that. We can't quack that way. So let's come alive and let's not be dead. Did you ever go into a church, look around, and you thought the, the pews were filled with corpse, and the preacher in the pulpit was a dead man? And you could just feel the icicles, see them hanging down from the feet. And you thought if you were to lean against the wall, you would freeze to death. You call that Christianity? Why, my friend, oh, we may talk about the grace of God and the love of God and all of that, but that's not Christianity. It requires that we pay a price, and that price demands action, motion, go. Go, go. All right. In the next place, it requires church attendance. You knew I was going to mention that since this is the first day of the meeting. You just knew it. I'm out of time, but I can't afford to disappoint you. I just can't afford to disappoint you. We still have this passage, Hebrews 10, 25. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together after the manner of some is. It's there. It was there yesterday. It's there today, and it'll be there tomorrow. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And do you recall over in 1 Samuel 20 and verse 18, for Jonathan, in speaking to David, said, Thou shalt be missed because thy feet will be empty. Now that's a significant passage. And that one could strike a dagger in our hearts, couldn't it? Thou shalt be missed because thy feet will be empty. And if your feet is empty tonight, you shall be missed. If your feet is empty tomorrow night or Tuesday night or Wednesday night, you shall be missed. Now, during World War II, we at one time had 11 million people in uniform. And many, many people were engaged in the war effort in a civilian way in the manufacture of equipment and armaments. And I recall that back at that time on one plant, up at the front, there was this big sign, when you lay out, you are working for Hitler. 
when you lay out, you're working for Hitler. Now, couldn't we, in a parallel way, put the thought out concerning the Lord's word? When you lay out, you're working for Satan. Is that right? Is that good logic? Because the Lord has said, if you're not for me, you are against me. And if you're not gathering with me, then you're scattering abroad. Now, it cost us the price of loving God more than we love pleasure. You know, we've got a world that's gone mad with pleasure. No question about that. But now, Christianity cost us greater love for God than for pleasure. Paul said, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. So we must love God more than we love pleasure. Otherwise, it wouldn't be much Christianity, would it? Now, I've always doubted that man's excuse that he gave out on the lake on a Sunday morning. Out fishing. Remember the church. And he looked at his watch and he said to the other fellow in the boat, said, well, brethren and sisters are having church. They're having church about this time. Well, John, we really ought to be ashamed of ourselves. Here we are out here on the lake. Our people, God's people, are engaged in worship, and here we are out on the lake. And Henry said, well, I couldn't have gone anyway because my wife is sick. Now, I've always doubted that excuse, the validity of it. Now, sometimes, since we are so set on pleasure, we sometimes try to come up with some little old dead limping excuse that gets to be downright comical. Christianity is the world's greatest blessing. It's cost the world's greatest price. But a thing that doesn't cost anything isn't worth anything, is it? No, no, not worth much. Today we come to give the invitation. If you need to come believing, repenting, confessing your faith in Christ, and if you need to be baptized for the remission of sins, we pray that you'll come. Or if you need to come and confess your faults as an erring Christian, we pray that you will. Let's stand and sing this morning.